Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew 3. What we're doing this summer is looking at the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 3. If you were here last week, we looked at the incarnation, the childhood of Christ, and now we're going to fast forward in the life of Christ almost 20 years in the Scriptures. It's uh, really, you don't miss anything because there's nothing recorded from age 12 all the way to age 30. Jesus, as best we know, was just living in a small town being a good son, his father probably passed away somewhere between ages 12 and 30, and he probably, in a sense, was the man of the house. He had some younger siblings. And now we're going to start with his public ministry, the baptism, Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 7, which this is really about the ministry of John the Baptist, the precursor uh, of the Lord Jesus. So, Matthew chapter 3, start in verse 7. But when he saw, this is John the Baptist, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. So John the Baptist is what you would call a seeker-sensitive type preacher. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from those stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit and is cut down and thrown to the fire, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, now... Uh, A couple things. Look back at verse 11. Note this. I baptize you with water for repentance. John the Baptist comes. Okay, Baptism, we don't know exactly when it started, but sometime probably hundreds of years before the Old Testament. And it was some type of purification type symbolic ceremony that if a Gentile, any non-Jewish person, decided they wanted to convert and start to worship the one true God, Yahweh, of the Jews, they would have to go through some kind of symbolic cleansing and washing with water. Okay, If you want to argue about was it a pouring over their head or was it a dunking, I'll be honest, I don't care. Uh, talk to Max afterwards, okay, and he'll answer all your questions about that. But there was some type of baptism. What John the Baptist did that was radical, he's basically having this revival in the nation of Israel and saying, you're so sinful, you may claim the name of Yahweh, but you don't live like it, you don't act like it. And we need to repent. We need to be cleansed from our sins. And literally, it's like the whole countryside, everybody, even the righteous leaders like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that were the religious leaders of the day, were going out to Him. This baptism for repentance. Now, this is where Christ is going to come onto the scene. And the first thing we're going to see Him doing is identifying with sinners. Okay, so, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by Him. And John would have prevented Him, saying... I need to be baptized by you until you come to me. So he's saying, listen, and there's another place, we won't look at it tonight, where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and one of the things he says is, he's the greatest man ever up until this point in history. He's the greatest man ever. Okay? But when John the Baptist gets before Jesus, right, he's the one rebuking pretty harshly all the religious leaders. He gets before Jesus, he falls to his feet and says, I don't have a message for you, sir. <laughs> I don't need to tell you about baptism because he realizes you're holy, you're righteous, you're perfect, and I'm not. I need baptism when I stand in front of you. 
But Jesus says, verse 15, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. So what Jesus is saying is, Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, he knew why he was here. He was here to die for sinners. And so at the very beginning of his ministry, he was going forth to say, I'm not a sinner, but in a sense, I'm going to do the things that sinners have to do to be right with God. Sinclair Ferguson is a great Scottish preacher. He has this great preacher on the baptism of Jesus. And one of the things he says is, listen, this was a baptism for the remission of sins. So symbolically, it was like you were washing your sins away, right? Again, doesn't matter whether you believe they were dunking them or pouring the water. The point was they were getting washed and cleansed with the water. So just imagine if we literally had like a big bathtub up here, okay? And everybody had come into the meeting dirty tonight. And we said, you know, we said, we're going to have a baptism for the remission of dirt off of your body. And you come up here and you wash all the dirt off your body and then you're cleansed. And then Jesus comes in and he has no sin. He has no dirt on him. Perfect white clothes. But he went and stepped into this bathtub. What's he literally going to be stepping into? Tons of dirt. It's dirty water, right? And symbolically what Jesus is doing is saying, I came to step into all of your sin. I don't have any sin. But I'm coming into to be, when I get baptized, it's like I'm being washed with all your sin. Because I'm identifying with you. Because I love you. Because I care for you. And I know I've come. And I'm not going to resist it. Verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, you only get God the Father speaking audibly about two or three times in the New Testament. And it's to Jesus. And he basically says something very similar to this. Okay, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. My son makes me happy. Now, this is kind of a side note, but for some of you, this might be the important, most important thing you hear tonight. Remember what I just said Jesus had been doing his whole life? There's no record that he ever did any miracles, that he ever preached any sermons, that he ever, you know, led somebody to trust in Yahweh for the first time. He had just been a normal, simple, faithful, little boy, son, worker in the carpenter shop, and then an older brother helping take care of the family. He had just done normal life really well, really faithful. And what did Father God say? I'm happy with you. You make me happy. I mean, I work for a college ministry. Some of y'all are involved in it, okay? Briarwood is a very missional church. You know, we're about doing stuff, reaching people, getting out there, right? Even during the summer, we're supposed to be on vacation. Here we are on Tuesday nights having another meeting, talking about the Bible. We're very intentional, right? And sometimes we can start to think, if I really want to be like a serious Christian, if I really want to be an all-in Christian, if I really want God to be happy with me, i got to go be like a full-time missionary, right? i got to like move to Asia or something and build an orphanage. And anything short of that, it's just like God's not going to be happy with my life. Not true. You could have the most boring, average, just go be an accountant for Jesus. But if you're just a faithful, godly person who loves people well, and, you're, and I have nothing against accountants. My dad's an accountant, all right? But it's probably not the most exciting profession in the universe. You love people well. You love your family well. You serve the Lord in just the normal, everyday, mundane of life. You can please the heart of God. Does that make sense? 
And that ought to be what we're all after. And then if God calls you to be a missionary, great, go be a missionary. But if God says, no, just stay in America and be a teacher, be a coach, be a mom, be a dad, whatever, do that to the best of your ability by His grace for His glory. That's what Jesus has been doing for 30 years. Another little side note. Some of you probably have these big dreams in your heart. It's like, but I want to move to Asia and build an orphanage. Awesome. You probably should finish college first, right? I know that's what your parents would almost certainly say. And don't feel like, well, you know, math and science and reading and writing and arithmetic, it's all just stupid and a waste. I just want to read the Bible all day. Part of that's good, okay? Part of that's dumb and naive. I mean, you've got to be able to read to read the Bible, right? And what I'm saying is this. Don't be in such a hurry that you get ahead of God. That's possible. I mean... God became a man and lived on planet earth for 33 years. And for the first 30 years, he didn't do anything special. We almost don't know anything about his life for the first 30 years because he didn't do anything special. Why? We'll get to one of the other reasons in a second, okay? But one of the reasons was just to say, normal life is good. I like normal life. I'm for normal life. Do normal life well. Enjoy normal life. Do it for my glory. Does that make sense? Okay? Be faithful where God has you today and don't just spend all your time dreaming about what you might do in the future and miss just the normal, simple life that God's called you to today in your proverbial carpenter shop. Okay? Now, so, he identifies with sinners. And then God the Father speaks and affirms him. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Like, man, it doesn't get much better than this, right? Jesus... Got the Holy Spirit coming down visibly like a dove. God the Father speaking audibly. I mean, if any of you ever wish, like, hey, God, if you're still doing that whole audible voice thing, please sign me up. I'll take it. I'm like a Presbyterian. We don't even technically believe in that. But if you're still doing it, please let me get it just once, right? It's like it doesn't get any better than this. And look at the next verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit of the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Well, thanks for nothing. Listen, sometimes... After your greatest successes, your greatest blessings, you'll get humbled. You'll get tried. You'll get tested. You'll get tempted. Okay? Jonah had a great revival in the Old Testament, then he got mad at God about it. Elijah had a great revival, and then he just wanted to fall over and die. Okay? Life, even for the most mature and godly Christian, even for this famous guy named Jesus, to some degree is a roller coaster ride. Just hang on. There will be high highs and there will be low lows. Don't get addicted to either one. And then there will just be the boring times, mundane in the middle. And true godliness is about being faithful, whether you're on a high, you're in a low, or it's just mundane and boring. And Jesus is a great example of how to do that for us. Okay? Here's Matthew Henry, great commentator. After great honors are put upon us, we must expect something that is humbling. As Paul has a messenger of Satan sent to buffer him after he had been in the third heavens. God usually prepares his people for temptation before he calls them to it. Okay, so part of why God was speaking at the baptism was for all the people, for John the Baptist, for people to realize this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God. But almost certainly, just wait till we read the next few verses, part of the reason that God was speaking was to give greater affirmation to the human heart and soul of Jesus. Now that can sound weird to us. We're like, Jesus is God. He doesn't need anything. Right? He's fully God. He's also fully man. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher in London, 
century ago roughly, he said that sometimes a way to think about what it really means to be baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit is imagine a good daddy and a good little boy walking down the street and they have a great relationship and the dad is holding the hand of his little son. But for some reason, the father just is overcome with emotion for a second, stops, turns, picks up his son, and just showers him with love. I love you. I'm so glad God gave you to me. He's kissing me. He's hugging me. You're the greatest son ever. I love you. Then he puts him back down. Now, has anything in the nature of their relationship essentially changed? Nope. It was a good dad, good son, good relationship before. But has anything in the experience of the son changed? Absolutely. Life transformative, right? Just another side note. Imagine if right after that, this little boy saw one of his friends from school and he said, I think you're fat and ugly. You think the little boy would have been like, well, I don't really care that much. My dad likes me, right? He's bigger than you. He can beat you up. You keep running your mouth. (laughs) There'd be this deep sense of assurance that would free him from so many of the petty games that we get caught up in every day. And Jesus in his humanity, he never sinned, but he did struggle with the same weaknesses that we do. Same temptations in many ways, right? So the Lord is affirming him because looks what's coming next. Part of his identifying with sinners is he's tempted. Okay? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, He's tempted in every way as we are. So let's look at this. Well, let's do this way. Okay? I'm going to read the whole passage, then we're going to talk about it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against a stone, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now we're going to do a couple things here. The first thing is this. Do you notice anything similar about the first two temptations? Look at verse 3 and look at verse 6. Do you know anything similar about the first two temptations, what Satan says to Jesus? This is the crowd participation part. Okay? If you are the Son of God. He has the same intro. If you are the Son of God. And it could be translated, since you are the Son of God. But I, really part of what we're going to try to do tonight is we're going to really try to understand some of the roots of our sin and temptation. And the deepest root of all sin, think about this. Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says, anything that is not from faith is what? Sin. So, sin starts when you turn away from faith. When you start to doubt. So, Satan starts with, if you are the Son of God, or maybe since you are the Son of God. But either way, here's what Satan is trying to do to Jesus, and here's what Satan is trying to do to any of us. He is trying to drive a wedge between you and your relationship with God. He was trying to drive a wedge between Jesus' relationship with His Father. Are you sure you're the Son of God? You don't look like the Son of God to me. You look like a homeless loser. Out here in the desert by yourself, you ain't not eaten anything in 40 days. 
Or it may have come across this way. Well, you are the son of God. Why do you got to wait on your daddy to feed you? Why don't you feed yourself? Take care of business. Thought you were a prince. Let's see your power. Make sense? Either way you take it, the goal is the same. Separation between that intimate oneness of the father and the son. Okay, And then he has three different specific temptations that we're going to go into a little bit more. Keep your finger here in Matthew 3 because we're coming right back. Okay, I'm going to ask you to go to two other places. All right, so you're going to, It's kind of like the old Baptist sword drills. All right, So the first one's going to be easy. All the way back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. All right, Everybody can do that. Even if you've never opened Bible 4 in your life. It's just page 3. Okay, Genesis 3. The very first temptation. Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, paradise. Everything's wonderful. They had no indwelling sin. They're like Jesus in that. And they were not living in a sinful culture. They were living in a perfect world at this point. Satan comes to them, is tempting them in similar ways. Okay, look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See what he's trying to do? You can't trust God. He said don't eat this one specific forbidden fruit. He's trying to drive a wedge there between Adam and Eve and God. Don't trust Him. He's not a good loving daddy. He's a tyrant trying to hold you down, keep you back. Now look at what happens when they decide to eat the forbidden fruit. Verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It's going to taste good. That it was a delight to the eyes. It looks beautiful. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It's going to make me smarter. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who were with her. And he ate. Okay, so remember those three things. It was going to taste good. It looked good. It was going to make me smarter. Now, keep your finger in Matthew 3, but go past it. This one's going to be hard. All right, so we'll see who knows the Bible the best. 1 John, okay? It's close to the end, but it's kind of small, and there's a lot of different little Johns and a lot of different letters back there that start with J. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 16, and look at what the Apostle John is going to say. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 16. If you hadn't found it, it's okay. Just listen. For all that is in the world, and by this he means the sinful world culture that we live in. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but as from the world. And, and, and probably a better translation, I think it's the King James says, the boastful pride of life is the third one. Okay? So, back to Jesus. Here's the point here, here's, the, here's, the, uh, here's the logic of sin. Sogic, sin is actually irrational, but Satan tries to present a ration to us. Does that make sense? Okay? You can't trust God to provide for you. He's not a good father. So if God's not going to take care of you, somebody else has to take care of you, who's the best candidate? Try participation again. If God's not going to take care of you, who's going to take care of you? Me. i got to look out for number one, right? So then there's this sense of pride, rebellion. I'll do whatever I want. And then you start looking around, and this is where coveting comes in, which is just a big word for, it's really not a big word, it's just an old word, it's a short word for inordinate desire, right? Here's the definition of coveting at a practical level. I have to have blank to be happy. And if I don't have blank, I can't be happy. Right? The forbidden fruit. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Now, let's look at how this lands on Jesus. So, the very first one. And the tempter came, right? Fasting 40 days. It's almost over, but it's not quite over. He's very hungry. 
If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus could do it, but look at how he responds. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this first temptation is, okay, the food was going to taste good. The lust of the flesh. It's our appetites. It's about pleasure. Listen, pleasure is not bad. God invented pleasure. St. Augustine, I think, has this great quote. I've never been able to find it, but I, but I think it's attributed to him that says, Satan is not able to create any new pleasure. He just takes all the good pleasures God has created and he perverts them and he twists them. That seems like it works pretty well in history, doesn't it? In our own lives. This is about our appetites. I want more sleep. I want more food. I want more drink. I want to feel high again. I want more sex. Any type of pleasure. Which in their right place and time, often is a good thing. But when we say, I have to have it, my time, right away, my way, like kind of the old Burger King commercials. Do they still do those commercials anymore? Your way, right away, okay? You apply that to the lust of the flesh, it doesn't work good. And Jesus has enough wisdom to push back and say, no, bread's important. I like bread. I'm a fan of bread. (laughs) But I don't eat bread when my daddy wants me to eat bread. But I tell you what, I eat every day, the Word of God. One of the things you learn about the devil, he doesn't give up. Temptation doesn't give up. This great old writer, a guy named John Owen, wrote this great book called Sin and Temptation. And one of the things he said is, listen, if you ever feel like sin, indwelling sin that lives in you, is kind of dead and dormant, it's not doing anything, don't think, and I'm I'm big time paraphrasing the old English here, okay? Don't think that you've just gotten so sanctified, you're out of the battle. Rather, you need to think of it, it's like a crouching lion, that is trying to lull you to sleep into its confidence. So when your guard goes down, it'll pounce. Jesus was ready. The devil comes with round two. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, This is probably about the boastful pride of life. The desire to be wiser. I mean, saying, Jesus, I know 40 days ago God gave you this big affirmation, but where's the crowd? Where's the prestige? Where's the power? Where's the popularity? You're a nobody. Not here in the wilderness by yourself? This is a terrible plan. I got a better plan for you. Me and you go to the temple, you jump off, supernatural miracle, God takes care of you, you're the most famous guy in town. Jesus says, no, 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 not going to rush it. Not going to get ahead of my father's plan. I trust him. I'm not lusting after power. I'm not lusting after position. I'm not lusting after prestige. He can wait. So there's one more. Verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now this is super instructive, guys. What's very interesting is Jesus doesn't say, You can't do that, Satan. And the best commentators would say, because Satan could do that. We won't take time to do it now, but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. And when Adam and Eve first fell, we don't understand exactly how it worked, but it's like Satan took over planet Earth. And ever since then, God's been fighting. Now, God could do it just like that when He wants to. 
but it's kind of like any y'all ever seen any of the old Rocky movies, you know, where Rocky fights these guys that are bigger and stronger than him, and there's like seven rounds where Rocky just like, hit me as much as you want, I don't care, and then he wins in the end. The Bible's a little bit like a Rocky movie. Because like God's like, I'm going to beat you, Satan, but I'm going to beat you with like both my hands tied behind my back. I'm going to use all these people down here to beat you. And Jesus coming as a little baby, right, all the little sweet Christmas mangers we have, and really was the greatest invasion force of all time. He's just one man, he's just one baby. But Satan's finally met his match. But here's the point. Jesus doesn't say, you can't do that. Now, why, why am I hitting on that? It's not just random Bible trivia. Satan is really powerful, guys. Right? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen. But you by yourself against Satan, you're a goner. And so am I. Jesus realized he has massive power. In fact, the first two temptations, I don't know if you get this sense, but I get this sense, the first two temptations, Jesus like, you know, Satan says, you should make yourself some bread. And Jesus is like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. Kind of like, what else you got? That didn't even really bother me that much, Satan. But on this third one, it's like Jesus gets aggravated. He gets frustrated. Look at what he says. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, this was about the lust of the eyes, stuff, you can have everything, but it was really deeper than that. And here's another way, we won't take time to do it. If you go back and read Genesis 3, verse 1, when Satan first shows up on the scene, the very first thing it says about him is, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Really shrewd. He's smart. And a lot of times he'll kind of say, look at this shiny apple, here's the real temptation. But there's a deeper temptation. And the deeper temptation for Jesus was this, Put the cross behind you. Just skip it and go straight for the crown. I know why you came. I know you came to take planet Earth back over. But I know the Father probably has some plan that's going to hurt you. I got an easier plan. Fall down and worship me. Treat me like your heavenly Father and I'll give you the whole thing. Take the easy way out. And this seems to be a real temptation for Jesus because he says, get out of here. Satan does run away. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 4. And again, for time's sake, I'll just refer to one of the verses while you're turning there. Luke chapter 4 gives us the almost exact same account. Mixes up the order a little bit, but it's the exact same account. And when it comes to the end, it says this. It says, Satan left Jesus. Anybody know this phrase? For what? Anybody know? A more opportune time. He left, but he was coming back. He wasn't going to give up. We have no indication that Satan gets tired. I don't think he honors national holidays. Okay, doesn't take vacations, doesn't take naps. He's a persevering enemy. And he's coming after us. Now, a lot that we can take away from tonight. The first thing that ought to just be clear to us. right? I said there was something similar about the first two temptations. There was also something similar about all three times when Jesus responded. What was the similar thing? This is easy. This is the layup. It was all from Scripture. It's written. It's written. It's written. Again, if God in the flesh needed to slash chose to quote Bible verses against Satan when he was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, how much more do you and I need to do it? And guys, did you notice that the verses he quoted seemed to be very applicable to the specific temptation? They weren't just random Bible quotes, right? Jesus, I know you're hungry. Why don't you make yourself some bread? In the beginning, 
Then he said, hey, I got a verse about bread memorized, Satan. If you're a Christian, part of what maturity for us looks like is we should know the ways that we get tempted the most often. And we should start memorizing specific verses about those temptations. So when the tempting thoughts come, Satan's probably not going to come talk to you face to face or like a serpent. But when the thoughts come into your mind, he is able to somehow influence our thoughts that you're ready to push back with Scripture. Right? And everybody doesn't struggle with temptation the same way, right? I don't tend to struggle a ton with money, temptations, and possessions and stuff, right? You can, you know, don't ask me how long I've had the clothes that I'm wearing, okay? I just, I have other things in life that I struggle with. That's just not one of them. It's not because I'm super spiritual. It's just we don't struggle with the same things. I tend to struggle more, okay, with the pleasure ones. So one of the verses that I've memorized and I try to use a lot is Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. In your presence, talking about the Lord, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when thoughts come into my mind about here's a way to get some quick pleasure, yes, it's technically sin, but who cares about the details? Do it anybody. Nobody will ever know. Part of what helps me is to say, no, 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 I, I get it. That might be fun in the short run. But if I keep putting my faith in Christ and waiting, there's going to be pleasures forever in heaven. Does that make sense? Memorize specific scriptures to prepare for the fight that you're going to fight every day. Look to Jesus as your model how to fight against sin. But Hebrews chapter 4, skip all the way down to verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So see, when I start talking about, you know, most of us were not tempted in the same ways and we're not all tempted like in an equal manner in the different areas, we tend to have one main area we tend to struggle with sin over and over and over again. For a lot of us, that produces a lot of guilt and shame, doesn't it? Because even if you've been a Christian like me for 30 plus years, I think, best I can tell, you're really tempted, even if you have lots of Bible verses memorized about God's character, you're really tempted to think that at some point God's just going to get sick and tired of you, right? Like the first 10,000 times, okay, grace. But 10,001, I'm sick of this crap. I mean, if I was God, I'd probably respond that way, right? Aren't we all glad I'm not God? <laughs> and that you're not either. But who do we have? Listen, when we go to God the Father, who is gracious and loving and kind, we go to Him via the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest who lived on earth, who is tempted in every single way as we are. We just got a picture of it. And yet without sin, He never gave in. So he's understanding. He can sympathize with how hard it is, how painful it is, how attractive it is. And yet he has mercy. He has grace. He has compassion. Because as important as he is in our life, as our model, that's not his main role, is it? And hallelujah, it's not. Because if the only thing he was for us was a model, we're all doomed, right? Because how you doing? Following the model. 
How am I doing? Not very well. But praise God, He's a Savior. He's a substitute. He's the sacrificial atonement for my sin and for everybody that ever trusted in Him. That He lived a sinless life, never a lustful thought, never a hateful feeling towards another human being in sin. Never a harsh word, never a greedy, selfish action that He shouldn't have had. And he gets to the end of his life and he should have been commended and yet he's condemned. So that when I put my faith in him, I get power to fight all the day-to-day temptations. But even when I don't use that power very well, I still get to the end of my life and I ought to be condemned and I get awarded in his place with eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. You're such a good God. You're so gracious. I mean, the gospel... It's almost too good to be true. It's seemingly too good to be true. But maybe one of the things that is the most uh, convincing that it is true is it fits perfectly with our life, with our neediness, with our weakness, with our stupidity, with our returning to the same sins over and over like a dog to its vomit. And yet we have a master like you that's so gracious and compassionate. I pray that we would all be transformed from one degree of glory to the next by your grace tonight. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.